This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. Our book today is titled Beautiful Land of the Sky, and it's a biographical sketch of Harlan P. Kelsey. Our author, Mr. Lorne M. Wood, overseer of the Harlan P. Kelsey Arboretum. Mr. Wood, welcome to the program. Well, thank you, Jay, for having me on. This is a, it's a wonderful opportunity. And uh, why don't we charge right in and see if we can... Uh, come up with some interesting stuff for your listeners. Well, I think that's a great idea. I, not a, not many people, not many of my listeners are familiar with the work and the life and legacy of Harlan P. Kelsey. You have been involved in the outdoors, and obviously you're involved with the oversight of his arboretum that's named in his honor. Share your background story and why this book became important to you. Well, uh, the background story is that... Uh, I'm a, uh, I started out as a jet engineer and ended up uh, uh, in the financial business and uh, on retirement <coughs> realized that uh, uh, most of my adult life I'd lived in Kelsey's house on Kelsey Road <laughs> next to the Kelsey Arboretum. <laughs> and uh, uh, so uh, there was a, an acquaintance uh, who had to write a term paper for a Harvard Radcliffe landscape architecture course, and she picked Kelsey and did a paper on him that was well done and well received, got an A. But uh, after she finished that, she uh, moved with her husband to St. Joseph, Missouri, and left me (laughs) with her source material and a million, a million endless remaining questions. Mm. So my task over the last 10 to 15 years has been to chase down uh, the answers to these questions, and uh, that's uh, sort of how this thing got uh, started in its infancy. Why did um, you, Why did you title it "Beautiful Land of the Sky"? You co- you do a comparative between uh, Mr. Kelsey's work and John Muir's uh, work on the eastern side, the eastern counterpart. Beautiful land of the sky. Well, um, it's a darn good question, and uh, uh, I. Uh, I have a very uh, uh, detailed answer. Uh, it's the Southern Appalachians, the highlands of the Southern Appalachians is uh, yes. locally called the beautiful land of the sky. It was beautifully defined by Kelsey in a 1940 speech before the Massachusetts Horticultural Society. Uh, he boiled it down into the, really three categories. It's the mountains. Uh, and beyond that, it's the unmatched flora. And finally, beyond that, it's the mountain people that he lived with up in the, these high southern Appalachians. And if we can kind of could kind of go through uh, how he defined that, uh, the people will get a better idea if they hear Kelsey's words exactly. Would love to hear that. And uh, well, the mountains part of it, uh, he he started out. He says North Carolina's mountain flora district, popularly known as the land of the sky, contains about 6,000 square miles with an average elevation of 2,500 feet. From Virginia to South Carolina and Georgia, it is about 100 miles, and 60 miles wide on average. The highest peaks in the east of the Rockies are to be found here, over 47 being higher than Mount Washington. Then he goes on and recites uh, various statistics about them and so forth. He says, these are not the youthful Rockies, Sierras, Cascades, or the giants of the Alaska Range. They are instead the oldest mountains in the world and contain North America's greatest horticultural treasure chest. And uh, that's how he defined the mountains. But then he went on in his speech and talked about the unmatched flora. Um, 
truly the great glory of this region is its unmatched flora and fortunately owing to its rugged character dense forest growth and hitherto inaccessibility it was found possible to set aside and preserve the large area now known as the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, some 600,000 acres forever, to preserve these wonders of nature in a virgin state. Latitude, combined with high altitudes, abundant moisture, and generally acid soils, explain at least in part this extraordinary flora, probably unrivaled elsewhere in the world for the given area. Then he goes on to say, uh, he waxes eloquent from there. Yeah, you. Yeah, you, he, well, he oh. just he gives you specific numbers. All right, so wow. the Great Smokies alone there are 127 species of trees, while the whole of Europe, the whole of Europe, can boast only 85 species. Really? Nearly 1,500 species of flowering plants have already been identified. New ones are being discovered each year. It's quite probable that in the entire eastern Tennessee and western North Carolina area and in surrounding the park. There are at least 2,500 flowering plants, a veritable paradise for the botanist and plant lover. Even as a uh, child growing up in the Appalachians, uh, he was a young child that was deeply impressed by his environment, wasn't he? Oh, yes, he was. He, he, he loved it. He loved it. And he also loved the people that uh, surrounded him. He, he, of course, his, he grew up in, in, a, in the town of Highlands, North Carolina, but he was constantly out mixing it up with the mountain people and uh, in a 1920s paper he, he wrote about that he actually he was quoting a guy named Marshall Bonsall who had written in Southland magazine a bit about the mountain folks and I, I think every time I read this to someone that they won't let me stop <laughs> I'm, I might and, though <laughs> anyway here we go cut go me ahead. off sure <laughs> uh, you go right ahead he, he says English as she is spoke by the mountain folk of western North Carolina and the adjacent mountain regions is rich in quaint and curious phrases and words. Soon does not mean in the near future. It entirely takes the place of early and is more rarely used as an adjective as in, do you all want to take the soon train this evening? Or, I made a soon start this morning. But frequently, also as an adverb, I've seen him pass here soon in the afternoon. In the afternoon, the other uses referred to are hard to connect very clearly with the ordinary meaning of early. A man may boast of owning a mighty soon or a plum soon hound, or horse, or even child. <laughs> in this case, soon evidently means intelligent, clever, quick-witted. In the sense of early, soon may be qualified as either right soon or much more frequently plum soon. If you make a plum soon start in the morning, you will, weather permitting, have some time in which to study the stars. A right soon start, however, would get you out about dawn and merely soon start, not before sunrise or even an hour by sun. That's a rich so that narrative, was, that isn't That was a it? quotation he included oh, to so give you the flavor of the mountain people. Uh, amazing. He included a lot of other elements of it. Of course, the, the only cash crop uh, that these mountain people had was moonshine. And there's this never-ending battle between the revenuers from the government and the uh, blockaders who are making the moonshine and selling it illicitly. And he gives some wonderful stories in there about uh, uh, these conflicts uh, and uh, how Kelsey grew up in the midst of them. How did he get involved in creating the eastern parks, though? From that beginning, well, he became the dominant horticultural force in the United States over the first quarter century uh, because of his um, as being the president of most of the nursery organizations. It's the nurserymen which drive a horticulture. It's what they plant. Is what we plant. And he he was really king of that uh, that group of people and became widely recognized so that uh, in the mid-20s, the, after the National Park Service had been founded in uh, 1917, uh, long after John Muir had died, the government decided they wanted to, to have some national parks. So this was a decision of the National Park Service. So they got Congress to appoint the Southern Appalachian National Park Commission. 
And of course, uh, one of the members that was uh, chosen for that was Harlan Kelsey. And uh, so he worked with four other people. I won't take the time because we'd be running out of it soon. And uh, they worked for about nine years. Uh, first, uh, in actually selecting which parks they could use. And uh, they, strangely enough, uh, in their reports to the Congress of the United States, they said the, the most logical first national park is the Great Smoky Mountains. Mm. But it's going to be so hard to develop that we think we should first do the Shenandoah National Park. So that's what they recommended. But <laughs> as Congress is wont to do, there were some glitches. It turns out that the uh, leader of the House of Representatives was also, I believe it's from uh, Kentucky, where mammoth caves are located, oh, yeah. he wouldn't bring this. He wouldn't bring this bill to the floor unless they also put mammoth caves in there. Hmm. So interestingly, uh, the initial bill which created the park started with the Smokies, the Shenandoah, and the mammoth caves all in one bill, and it passed. Uh, John Muir and was involved in the in the Western U.S. Think of John Muir. The, the national parks he was he is he is you can focus on as he being the driving force. Where you, of course Yosemite. Right. I thought um, he was involved and, there. And then there's uh, Sequoia, Kings Canyon, which is really one park divided into two. Uh, the Redwoods National Park and uh, Rainier National Park, which he got brought in uh, right about the turn of the century. Do you think that's the uh, do you think that's What's the reason that? that do you think that's the reason that uh, Mr. Kelsey was not as well known or his legacy is not as highly regarded perhaps? Well, uh, it's easy to think of not highly regarded. He was he was revered. Kelsey was revered around uh, the 1940s. And uh, the book is filled with quotations about how we're forever indebted to him. Uh, why did he then uh, get totally forgotten? I think the answer, and we we developed this theory in the book, I think the answer is that, that Muir was the great publicizer. He wrote endless books. He wrote endless uh, uh, magazine articles. So when uh, Century Magazine published one of his articles, it went to 200,000 subscribers. And uh, the result is that endless uh, geographical Things like mountains, uh, like uh, uh, parks, like schools, like uh, uh, all these sorts of things carry his name. Uh, uh, the Muir Woods, uh, uh, all these are examples of how his name uh, became recorded. And people to this day, they go through the, the Muir Woods and they see Muir. And uh, these certain colleges are named John Muir College. And so that constantly resurrects Muir as the icon for Western wilderness and preservation. Kelsey, in, by comparison, by this time was dealing with the, the movers and shakers uh, within organizations like the National Park Service and like the various uh, nursery organizations. So even though he was revered by these people, once they died, and once all these documents were put into dusty archives, he faded away. There was nothing to resurrect his name, nothing mm. to constantly remind you. So hopefully uh, the prescription to uh, change this injustice is to begin to name some of the geographical areas and, and items that Kelsey was, was important in uh, creating, like the Smokies. Why not take the Appalachian Trail, which has no name as it traces along the crest of the Smokies? Why not call it the, the Kelsey uh, uh, Crestline Trail or something like that? So that every person that starts out from Georgia and makes the Appalachian Trail trek goes through the Kelsey Trail. Interesting then, concept. Interesting yeah, idea to do that. Yeah, and there are many, many other things that uh, Kelsey created or requested uh, that that are not there now. He wanted to, for example, make uh, along the Blue Ridge Parkway, uh, uh, places where you could examine the flora and in its native environment. And uh, 
There is one such. It's uh, Craigie Gardens. It exists on the Blue Ridge Parkway just north of Asheville. But where did the name Craigie come from? It's, it's the, I think it's the, the geography, the Craigie Mountains, but I'm not sure of that. It must be the why must not, be a location. Why not name that arboretum that's there, the Kelsey Arboretum? Uh, that, that's another example. And we go on and on and on. Uh, the ultimate recognition, of course, would be uh, a Harlan P. Kelsey historical site similar to the historical site from Muir. Now, rumor has it that you you estimated that you you spent uh, a, not only a long time putting your book into print or getting it ready for print, but you actually researched over fifty thousand items. Is that a fact? That is an estimate. <laughs> estimate. Yeah, you gave up after forty nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine. I counted something in excess of seventy thousand. Incredible. And I said it doesn't make any difference whether it's fifty or seventy. Use the lower number because it'll be more conservative. No, uh, we, it's too long a story to tell here, but uh, through extraordinary good fortune, I fell into the uh, enviable position of having all of the Kelsey files spread out in front of me. And uh, I was able to read these letters. It was important to read them, not just the opening paragraph, but read, scan the whole thing because he had a terrible habit Thing in the last paragraph. Oh, I forgot to tell you. Mm. And then he'd say something that was vital to the to the continuity of the story. <laughs> who do you think so, is Who do you think is going to define this this research, this story, this life of uh, of this wonderful conservator of of uh, the United States, Harlan P. Kelsey? Who's going to find this of interest? Well, I did a little survey. I uh, I said I'm going to have to uh, convince. Uh, an agent or a publisher or whatever that there's a big market for this and I came up with a definition of something in excess of 20 million people and um, I used this market research where we talked about primary serve markets and secondary serve markets so I split it out that way uh, the primary serve market I believe are the people who go through the eastern national parks yes there are this is an incredible number there's some nine million people who visit the Smokies each year. And you add the other uh, parks Kelsey uh, was responsible for, and the number climbs to over 12 million. Now, is that a big number? Yes, it's a big number. If you get the same number for annual visitation for the Yosemite or uh, Yellowstone, it's only 3 million. Really? So here at Kelsey's, uh, the, the people that go through uh, the Smokies is three times those who annually go to Yosemite. It's, it's remarkable. It is remarkable. How would you introduce then, your book in a couple of sentences to someone and get them interested in uh, buying a copy of it? A couple of sentences. Well, make, well, it, make it three. We'll. <laughs> okay. There was one of the questions uh, you asked was, uh, what do I want readers to take away from this book? Yes. And I put it this way. The beautiful land of the sky is the untold story of how horticultural preeminence established Kelsey as America's natural leader in selecting, and this is underlined, our most visited national parks. Beautifully compares put. Kelsey's role in the East with John Muir, the icon of wilderness preservation in the West. That's it. I think that covers the, uh, the question That's that I asked day. also about who, how would you introduce the book. That tells the story right there in a short, short couple of sentences. Yeah. With another, over, another way of yes. thinking of a table of contents is the cover, because, of course, the beautiful land of the sky stands out with a picture, actually, of the Smokies. And then the subtitle, John Muir's Forgotten Eastern Counterpart, Holland P. Kelsey, is the subtitle. That's what this book is about. And then why? Pioneering our native plants and eastern national parks. We haven't had time to talk about the important work he did in converting America from wanting to have exotics in their garden. He, in, in a half century, got them all wanting to have natives, and people need an excuse to have exotics now. That's another whole story that's unfolded in here. But there you have the table of contents. It's beautifully done. Beautifully done. 620 pages. There must have been some challenges you spent a great portion of your life researching his his uh, contribution. Were there any that were complicated? And uh, Well, the, 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 the biggest challenge uh, that I knew I had to conquer 
um, was how to take the material I had, the vast number of quotations from these 50,000 letters and items, and how to seamlessly merge them uh, into the narrative. Here's this, here's this narrative story going on from 1872 on to 1958, and with these thousands and thousands of uh, quotations that are, are important uh, in trying to uh, document this work. How do you make those two seamlessly merge? I worked awfully hard at that. And I think I've pretty basically done the right job uh, people have told me, uh, not just my friends and family, but others have said that it, it, the merging of these things, these quotations into the narrative, uh, keeps the book moving. And uh, uh, I think that was my biggest problem. You've done a you've done a great job on on uh, completing it and uh, sharing a story that's been lost into history. The life of Harlan P. Kelsey. As you were studying it and doing the research, was there one event that maybe startled you or encouraged you or cheered you up about his life? Well, I'll have to agree. Well, I was most startled going through the, the material when I ran into a letter. And there it was, bingo, proof. But the proof I was looking for uh, that uh, Kelsey was, uh, uh, was what he, they said he was. And uh, the, uh, this was a letter from uh, uh, Ray Lyman Wilmer. Uh, uh, he was Secretary of the Department of the Interior at the time. This was in 1932. And here's what, here's what he wrote. My dear Mr. Kelsey, this is not too long. I've, I have excerpted it. <laughs> Director Albright of the National Park Service has told me of your work in connection with the Shenandoah National Park Project in its present vital stages and of your services over a period of years in connection with the establishment of the Eastern National Parks and the investigation of other proposed park projects. While I know this has been a labor of love with you, carrying with it the realization of the importance of saving while they still could be saved. Such great primitive areas as the Everglades of the Greats and the Great Smokies, Ile Royale, and the like. Nevertheless, I want you to know that the Department appreciates to the full the value of your self-denying and experienced efforts in these directions. None of these projects, I'm confident, would have come to their present satisfying status had you not stepped in at critical moments and cheerfully given of the rest that was in you. The fact that we could rely on your ripe experience, judgment, and enthusiastic interest at such critical points has contributed more to their success than you probably will realize. And for this, I want to give you my most cordial thanks. Sincerely yours, Ray Lyman Wilbur, Secretary, Department of Interior. When I saw that letter, I said, wow, bingo. That's it. Uh, what more proof do you need uh, of the fact that he was the responsible party? And uh, uh, I, I, I never dreamed I'd run into a letter so convincingly. <laughs> That's defi- documenting definitely documenting what I would do my thesis. Yes, definitely the the icing icing on the cake is kind of cliche, but it is the underscoring of the fact that he was a phenomenal in. A contributor to the uh, legacy of uh, saving wetlands and saving important parts of the United States for posterity. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, is there a way we can get copies of your book, Harlan? Beautiful Land of the Sky. Yeah, not I'm, Harlan, I'm, not Harlan, I'm sorry, Lauren. You got Lauren. <laughs> See, you, you, you took me back. You took me so far back into his life that I thought I was actually talking to Harlan. <laughs> Lauren, how, how do well, we get copies of your it's book? It's available everywhere. Uh, you can go online with BarnesandNoble.com. You can go online with uh, um, Amazon.com. Uh, you can go directly to the publisher, which is iUniverse. Uh, the book is available in hardcover, it's available in softcover, it's available in ebook form, and uh, there you have it. Lauren, it's been a delight yes. to talk to you about this, and they can also do a search online under your name or under the title of the book. Beautiful Land of the Sky will yes. bring up uh, uh, all of those things. And you will have a website in the near future so people can keep in touch. 
Lauren M. Wood has been my guest. Thank you, sir, for joining me today. And listeners, you can find Mr. Wood, L-O-R-E-N, middle initial M, last name Wood, W-O-O-D, no S. And by doing a search, you'll be able to learn about this particular project and any works that develop in the future. Thank you, Lauren, for being my guest today. Thank you, Jay. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Jagged Side of Midnight, A Horse's Tale of Love and Loss, and the author is Patrick DeChico, and Patrick joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Patrick. Hello. Good morning. Great to have you with us. Uh, This is quite an interesting story because it's not only about this great racehorse, this uh, incredible, beautiful horse. and a great winner, wins every race, but it's also told from her point of view, Summer Storm's point of view. So we'll find out more about why you did it that way, and of course we'll learn about Summer Storm and all those around her for both good and bad, because in this story we're not only talking about a great racehorse, we're also talking about betrayal, greed, and murder. So first of all, though, Patrick, tell us a little bit about your background and why you wrote the book. Uh, well, I was uh, I was actually born at Fort Ord during the war, but uh, when the war ended, I was raised in Ohio. I was raised by my grandparents. Uh, I led an interesting life, and uh, I chronicled it in my first book, Running with God. Uh, I was raised in a steel town, Youngstown, Ohio. And coming from Italian roots, I was, I was uh, made aware of the mafia influence in our town and the surrounding communities. Uh, it seemed uh, like we knew them or knew, knew someone who did, and uh, quite often came up at uh, at our dinner. Uh, at our dinner, an Italian dinner was always a room, always a place for venting. It wasn't a quiet place. Uh, <laughs> So I was exposed to murder, gambling, racetracks, and the crime that followed these areas. Uh, Youngstown, at one time, was called uh, Bombtown, USA. I mean, they had like 82 unsolved, unsolved bombings in 10 years, and uh, uh, the FBI only got involved uh, when uh, two children were killed accidentally. Other than that, they were letting them kill each other off. So I left Ohio uh, in that area at the age of 19, and I settled in a rural town of Tascadero, California, and the only job in town was the Tascadero State Hospital, which was the only mental hospital for the criminally insane in the country at the time. I was a psych tech and, uh, ex- again, exposed to criminals and the deeds they do. I uh, worked as a psych tech for 18 years before becoming self-employed. Along the way, uh, when my daughter was young, uh, she had an Appaloosa. And then much later on, I purchased an Arabian for my wife, Laura. Uh, owning these horses taught me about horses. 
thus learning to like the, the racetrack and the excitement the races create. Uh, at retirement, I met a horse named Copper Bell, who was the impetus for this story. Uh, when I retired, I built a home on top of a mountain in Stallion Springs, uh, California. had a 50-mile view. It was just beautiful. However, right next door, there was a race, there was a rescue racehorse in a uh, barbed wire small area, and it was visible from uh, my master bedroom uh, window. And uh, every time I had to make the trip to the bathroom, I would look out the window, and there she would be. And uh, the winter winds uh, would be howling. Out. She had no shelter. Uh, from the summer sun or the cold winds and the, the snow that blew horizontally when a storm would come in. So I would see her standing there with her head down, braving the elements, and uh, this made me feel for her and eventually made me build a shelter for her. Uh, her name was Copper Bell, and the book was to bring forth the pitfalls of being a rescue horse, being originally called Copper Bell. Uh, later on, I changed the name of the book, and... Uh, uh, but the mountain is graphically detailed in one or more of the later chapters. So what is a rescue horse? A rescue horse is uh, a horse that uh, is either injured and uh, the owner doesn't want anymore, which was uh, Summer Storm's uh, case. Uh, she got injured in, in, in her final race. Uh, nobody wanted her, and... The owner was ready to retire and sell everything off, so she became a rescue horse. They go to a farm where there's only rescue rescue horses, and people come in and like going to a kennel when you want to rescue a dog or a cat. However, when when you rescue a horse, you have to have the facilities for the horse. You know, it's quite different, and a lot of people want to own a horse. They can't afford it, and they they end up rescuing a horse and can't take care of it properly. So Summer Storm starts out, obviously, with an incredibly bright future. Uh, she's sired by a national champion. So the book kind of uh, takes off from that point of view? Yeah, she's uh, born in the Bluegrass Hills of Kentucky, sired from champions. Uh, she becomes very successful. And uh, uh, she falls in love with her owner, which is a young girl. The young girl is, is the owner of the ranch's daughter, her only daughter. And uh, she loved the horse, so she took it upon herself to be her trainer uh, and her jockey. And uh, they had uh, quite a relationship together, um, which comes falling down later. So, Summer Storm, why did you decide to write this book from her point of view, actually from the uh, first person being the horse herself? Well, uh, living in Stallion Springs, I lived in the country, and uh, it was like 15 miles in the town just to get a half gallon of milk. Uh you have to go through farms, past farms, and a lot of horses out there uh, without shelters because of big ranches. And uh, uh, more than often, uh, I'd see them uh, standing there with their heads down, you know. And uh, I don't know, it made me feel like they were sad. Hmm. And uh, I wondered what they think about, you know, if they had feelings. Uh, uh, and so on. So essentially, I, the horse that lived next door, I gave her a voice and feelings, and uh, I gave her a life, a fictitious life, um, much grander than she had, I'm sure, uh, but not as sorrowful as, as Summer Storm's life. So there's a, a lot of going to the racetrack with Summer Storm then throughout the book. Yes, there is. Yeah, and a lot of that is for me visiting racetracks and uh, uh, incorporating some of the sights and sounds and smells of the track uh, into the book. Besides the owner's daughter, what's her name? 
Uh, the owner's daughter is Lauren. Lauren, who takes care of Summer Storm and trains her, and uh, it's like you say, they have this real uh, strong bond. Well, yes. Does, yeah. Now, who was the jockey? Uh, she was the jockey, too. Oh. Much, much to, to the dismay of, of uh, the trainer, uh, Angelo, who is the villain in the book, and uh, her mother, who didn't want her to get hurt, uh, but she was very uh, headstrong. Lauren was very headstrong, and she often got her way, being she was the only daughter. Well, of course, at the racetrack, it's all about uh, big money, uh, big money, uh, especially behind the scenes. Exactly, yeah, and that's uh, documented, too, in the book. So that's where, as you put it, betrayal, greed, and murder comes in, and how does Summer Storm play into all that? Well, uh, Angelo is Summer Storm's trainer. He's the trainer of the track, and he originally trained uh, uh, Summer Storm's father, who was a Triple Crown winner. And uh, Angelo had a dubious background. Uh, he came from Italy originally. His father was a Don in Sicily, and uh, he, he uh, fled to New York uh, more or less to save his life because uh, his father had uh, garnered some enemies, and they were killing his sons. So he was the youngest son, and they sent him to America, and he was put under a Don's hand in New York, and um, Angela wanted to go straight. He didn't want the life anymore, and became uh, started working in a, in a stable at a racetrack and worked himself up to being a trainer. However, along the way, the Don wanted uh, favors granted, and uh, he got Angelo to start drugging horses. And uh, that's how Summer Storm got started to get drugged because uh, they wanted more performance out of her at every race. They wanted to ensure that uh, their uh, the money was coming in. So Lauren must probably step in to try to stop that. Uh, Lauren was completely oblivious to it all until Summer Storm injured her uh, until Summer Storm injured her leg and was sent to a veterinarian and and they found uh, they found traces of uh, drugs in her system uh, which uh, which went on to uh, change the story uh, quite a bit. Well, we won't give that part away. Certainly, we want everyone to enjoy the book. Uh, the Jagged Side of Midnight. Uh, so, this story, would you say this story is uh, pretty realistic then? It's, uh, I think it's very realistic, yes. Uh, uh, the scenes, uh, the murders, the, the crimes involved, the gambling, uh, the what went on at the tracks, uh, uh, the ranch, everything's very realistic. Uh, the only thing you may you may find uh, interesting and, and not realistic would be Summer Storm's take on everything. Uh, being you're seeing it through her eyes, which I found to be very interesting. But uh, realistic, uh, I guess we could uh, we could talk about it until I'm hoarse, right? <laughs> <laughs> Yes, until your horse, exactly. All right, <laughs> Patrick, that was good. The Jagged Side of Midnight, that's the title, A Horse's Tale of Love and Loss. We've been listening to Patrick DeChico, and we need to know, Patrick, what's the best way to get your book? Uh, you could... Um... You could contact me, and I could send you a uh, soft copy or hard copy uh, autographed, uh, or you could buy a uh, you could buy a soft soft copy or hardcover or an ebook at BarnesandNobles.com or Amazon.com. And what's the best way to reach you, Patrick? Uh, the best way to reach me would be, uh, I guess, uh, give you my address. 
Or should I give you my phone number? Uh, your email address? Email address would be good. Okay, go okay. ahead. It's Patrick R. DeChico at att.net. Right, and DeChico is spelled D-I-C-I-C-C-O. Patrick R. DeChico at att.net. Patrick, thank you so much for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Well, thank you for thank you for the interview, and uh, remember the book is straight from the horse's mouth. <laughs> it is indeed. Thank you. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown. And after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for iUniverse, this is J. Douglas Barker. Our book today is titled, Don't Eat Dog Food When You're Old, How to Solve Your Retirement Cash Flow Puzzle. And our author is Dr. Roger Remick. Roger, welcome to the program. Thank you. You're joining me from the Atlanta, Georgia area. This book uh, grabbed my attention for a couple of reasons. One reason is my last name is Barker, and I tell people my nickname is J-Dog. So when you say don't eat dog food when you're old, it might be an impossibility for me since I'm a Barker. But this book is not directed toward me. It's directed towards the world in general. Tell me about the background story and why this book was written. Yeah, Jay, the book was written because I've become very concerned over the years. I got my doctorate in pensions and worked with retirement and benefits all of my life and accidentally stumbled into expertise in Social Security and Medicare, and I've become very concerned that people were making very bad retirement decisions and that my generation, the boomer generation, were going to experience a lot of heartache in retirement because they were retiring too early with, without sufficient assets and income. And I also felt that a lot of the ret- of the retirement advisors, financial advisors, didn't make a distinction between advising 60-year-olds and advising 30-year-olds. So that they emphasized asset accumulation rather than cash flow. And that's not how retirees think. If I go to a dinner party with a number of retirees, what I hear them talking about is... I have to worry about each month, does the money coming in exceed the money going out? Right. And hence, I felt that somebody needed to write a book to educate people on making Social Security decisions, Medicare decisions, decisions about whether to buy or not buy, long-term care, et cetera, and really to tell them it's all about cash flow. It's not about how big your asset pile is because 20 years ago just a little bit over 
you would have gotten eight percent on a six month CD and eight percent on a ten year treasury. Now they're lucky if they get one twentieth of that. And that means that people need a lot more assets to produce income. So the emphasis Jay needed to be on cash flow, not on assets. You mentioned or your thoughts are that retirement cash flow should be the major interest or major focus. An individual who has, let's say they are self-employed, which I know a lot of individuals in that category, they are living month to month. Uh, They are paying taxes at the end of the year, which are a cumulative uh, penalty because they are self-employed. How do they get to a position of retirement where they can feel comfortable besides looking at Social Security for their income? Well, Social Security for a self-employed person with a good income might might constitute 35 or 40 percent of their retirement cash flow needs, which means that they're going to be personally responsible for for the other 60 to 65 percent. The best way to do that is to take advantage of retirement saving opportunities through through IRAs, through other means of saving for retirement in a tax-qualified way. But people people aren't good about that, Jay. They, people don't seem to understand that they get a 50% boost for every for every $2 they're willing to save, they get $3 in their retirement account because of the tax savings. Right. And that man, that adds up over a long time. What I find is that the people who are in great shape when they retire are not the smartest people or the people who made the most money. They are the people who saved on a regular basis throughout their lifetime. You also feel that retiring too early is the single most important retirement mistake. What is too early? Well, of course, too early depends on an individual. Uh, My feeling is that as long as you are very productive, most people should probably work close to age 70 these days. When Social Security was created, the average life expectancy was less than 65. Right. And now average life expectancy has gone up about 10 years, uh, even greater, which is a point most people don't understand, is if you're already 50 or 60-something, now the chances are you're going to live to at least your late 80s, statistically. And that means that People shouldn't think of retirement as being a short-term thing. Even if one retires at 70, there's a very good chance that retirement's going to be for 20 years or more. So they they need to be prepared for a long retirement. Most people treat retirement like it was a three- to five-year thing. Instead of thinking of it as a, as a marathon, that may may go 30 years in retirement. In your book, you mentioned the term CAMP score. What is a CAMP score, and how does it affect an individual looking at retirement or staring it in the face? A lot of the people, I spent a lot of my time talking to people's professional advisors, their CPAs, their attorneys, their bankers, etc., and, the, and one of the most common things I kept hearing from them is we need some sort of quick test, like a credit evaluation, for retirement readiness. So after thinking about that, I had I had always done that on a one, one, one-off or one-person-at-a-time type thing, but I decided I'd better develop a tool that would allow my retirement friends to be able to take a quick and dirty test to to get a ballpark idea of how ready they were for retirement. So CAMP is an acronym that's 
the seat comes from cash flow. The the A comes from aging. Do they have they have they realistically looked at the fact that if you live long enough, there's a point when you are going to need help doing very basic daily things like eating, getting from one room to another, etc. So the A is for aging. The M is for medical. Have people prepared by having good good health insurance in retirement from maybe from a business, or are they making the right choices within Medicare? A very high percentage, alarmingly to me, just have Medicare Part A and Part B, and they are not buying. They are not buying the prescription drug coverage, and they are not buying the Medicare supplements because they cost. Realistically, they are a bargain. Mm-hmm. So the M is for medical. And the last one, and perhaps the one that would be sneaky that most people would miss, is that they need to be prepared for inflation. They need to maintain their purchasing power. Fortunately for most people, on the portion that is Social Security, it is cost of living indexed. But nearly all corporate pensions are not. If you have a pool of investment dollars to produce income, most people start drawing on those, which means the income is going to go down in the future rather than meeting the higher expense need needs to go up, so the, the pays for purchasing power, hence CAMP. And I like the fact that the acronym gave me something that was memorable. That it, it, what CAMP is a word, so that people would find that memorable in doing an evaluation. Your book is 196 pages. Is it complicated for the general public? Who is your target audience with this particular endeavor? No, uh, the target audience is a lay audience. Most lay people say that they read the book in three or four hours, and it reads pretty much like a novel uh, in that it's very easy reading. I had some very good editorial assistants. Uh, I think that I provide some humor, but the editorial assistants provided a lot of the additional humor to the to the process to make it more palatable. And we were very direct. We we talked about things that would get people's attention, like starting off with the twelve primary mistakes that people make in retirement got people's attention. One friend of mine said in the first 20 pages that she decided she had to go back to work. And that's good because in my sessions with her, I hadn't persuaded her of that. But but she read the first 20 pages of the book and said, whoops, i got to go back whoops. to work. Got her attention. Uh, hypothetical case, if someone is, let's say, in their 60s, 63, 64, they've been in low-level management, and the company they were with has basically folded and left them on the streets. They have a parachute, perhaps, to retirement, but it's not a very big one. And they are invited to go as an advisor to another company. And in that in advisory position, they become... Uh, more successful, have a larger income. What would you advise an individual like that to do? Those kind of people actually have some of the bait, the best opportunities, Jay, because when when people's income increases in their middle fifties or later, generally their children are grown, so a lot of the 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 expenses of rearing a family are behind them. So that I generally find this is they should take advantage of the tremendous opportunity they have. The Congress has done taxpayers, and a lot of this came about in 2003 with the tax changes in 2003. 
they've provided a great opportunity for people to save on a tax advantage basis, to be able to put money into a tax-deferred account. If it's an IRA or if it's some sort of employer account, those are great opportunities. Most people are not mathematicians, so they do not understand just how great those opportunities are. So what I speak, when I talk to clients, I try to emphasize that's one of the biggest mistakes people make, too, is not taking advantage of the ability to save on a before-tax basis. That's ah. huge. And in our current uh, status, in the current way the tax laws are written, is that available to someone throughout the year up until the 31st of December? Yeah, it uh, it's available through December 31st on a company plan. Self-employed people have the opportunity through April 15th, and most of us, except the very highest earners, may have an opportunity to contribute on a tax-deferred basis in an IRA all the way through April 15th. Fabulous. Well, that's that's news I was not aware of, not that I can necessarily take advantage of that, but you never know. It might happen. How would you introduce your book to someone in a couple of sentences? Well, I would say it's a very easy read that it is intended to raise people's awareness of the things that they need to prepare for retirement. It is also intended to give them an idea of how ready they are to retire. Unfortunately, most people think they are closer to being ready to retire than they really are. And perhaps surprisingly, the ones that are the best prepared are the ones that don't think they're prepared for retirement. Hmm. The people who are such good savers, who are such good uh, managers of their own financial fortunes, those are ironically are the ones who are least secure that they have enough to retire. And I have to tell them, you're in good shape. Roger, what does an individual do in the last few years before retirement if they haven't made preparation? I think the first question that I tell people to to be able to address, Jay, is what am I going to do to defer taking Social Security? The people who have not done a good job of preparing for retirement have one huge ace in the hole that most people don't realize. And that is that if you draw at 62 versus drawing at age 70, the difference is that if you would have gotten $1,000 a month at age 62, you'll get 1800 a month starting at age 70. And I always tell people, so Social Security is the best way to enhance your lifetime retirement income. The second benefit of that is that when you enhance your benefit, your surviving spouse also is entitled, if you die, to draw off of your increased benefit. So it's not just a benefit for the individual. It's a benefit for the individual and or their spouse, whoever lives the longest. It frustrates me that most of the literature deals with everybody as if they were single when a very high percentage of people either are married or were married for a long enough period of time to be treated as as married. And your presumption on that 62 uh, deferred to 70, is that based on them at least maintaining an income similar to what they have at 62 through age 70? Yeah, the, the the part that I was going to add to that, Jay, is if they focus on first the fact that they need to defer drawing Social Security, then what we have to do is figure out how are they going to get from age 62 to age 70. And that's where perhaps uh, the prospect of taking part-time employment 
becomes more attractive if they know that I have to make $1,200 a month in part-time employment income in order to make up for what I would have gotten in Social Security. But when I get to 70, I'm going to have I'm going to have 80% more income for the rest of my life, that becomes much more palatable than just taking a part-time job because you know you don't have enough to get by. Mm. So if you know that there's a purpose for that self, for that part-time employment, that really helps a lot. And I look for all kinds of means. I may even... I may even, and this is a thought process that's foreign to a lot of financial professionals until they read my logic, reverse mortgages, which 10 years ago I absolutely hated, have become a very viable option for two reasons. One is that interest rates are obviously much lower than they were, but the second one is that the cost of doing a reverse mortgage are down dramatically as invariably happens with products for competition, they are lower. And if a, if a reverse mortgage is necessary to get you from 62 to 70, but you enhance your self, your Social Security income from 1000 to 1800 a month for life, then that's a terrific decision to make. Good advice. To use the money from the reverse mortgage to let you get from 62 to 70. Your book approaches the evaluation of retirement differently than other sources, from what I'm understanding. What is different about evaluating retirement readiness the way you approach it? Well, the emphasis on cash flow is definitely different. Uh, In life, timing is everything, and I feel fortunate that that when, when I wrote this book, when I was because it takes it's a several year process. When I wrote this book, there was a real heavy emphasis on asset accumulation. People weren't recognizing the importance of cash flow like they should have been. Now, since then, there have been a lot of changes. One of the professional designations uh, has created a whole new designation for retirement cash flow. We're we're getting several excellent books that have been written uh, in the last 12 months, also on retirement cash flow. But the, the cash flow orientation was a pretty novel one, but it's one that is it, people are waking up, and I th- and to that I the, I attribute that to the fact that. We have 10,000 people reach at age 65 every year. And those 10,000, those people are saying, help, I got to retirement and I don't have enough cash flow. So I'm going to have to continue to work. Another part of what I tried to do in my book is point out that a huge mistake a lot of people make in addition to quitting their job too early is if they did, not being willing to admit it and grab a part-time job. That'd be tough to do, I think, at retirement age when you're wanting to slow down and then you need to go back to work. That's a very difficult decision to make. Were there any challenges in getting the material together to publish this book? Well, the biggest challenge was that I think like an accountant and I think like a mathematician. So... I really originally wrote a book that was intended for financial professionals to help them help their clients. Fortunately, the publisher said, this is fabulous, uh, but we would like to create a lay version of it. Where, And I found a professional writing colleague who helped me create a lay version. And that, that might have been the most challenging thing was to bring the material into a very readable form. And I give the, the guy who helped me with that a lot of credit. It has, he's, he's done a fabulous job. He said I would be thrilled with the manuscript after he changed it to make it a little more readable, and he certainly did do a good job. Fabulous. This book is titled Don't Eat Dog Food When You're Old, 
How to Solve Your Retirement Cash Flow Puzzle. Our author, Roger Remick. Roger, where can our listeners get copies of your book? One of the obvious ways to get a copy of my book is through Amazon.com. Uh, they make it available in in three forms. You can get a Kindle version. You can get the soft cover version, which is the most popular, and there's also a hardcover version. So Amazon is probably the best source to get a copy of my book. Thank you for sharing the background story and to how this book came into print. Thank you for being with me today as a guest. Thank you. Again, our guest has been Roger Remick, spelled R-O-E-M-M-I-C-H. For iUniverse, this is J. Douglas Barker. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.